New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. The enthralling worlds of quantum physics, chaos theory, synchronicity, and indigenous wisdom have transformed the way we perceive the universe. The shift that is unfolding brings together deductive reasoning, long the domain of traditional science, with the realm of the non-rational or intuitive, the domain of the mystic, and challenges our patterns of knowing. Life will never be the same. Exploring the connections between science, spirituality, and new ways of knowing serves as the focus for this edition of New Dimensions with our guest, F. David Pete. F. David Pete holds a PhD in theoretical physics and worked with the late quantum physicist David Bohm. His work has been influenced by such innovative thinkers as Roger Penrose, Bertram Russell, Sir Michael Tippett, Werner Heisenberg, and Nikola Tesla, among others. He's the founder of the Pari Center for New Learning and author of the autobiographical Pathways of Chance. Blackfoot Physics... From Certainty to Uncertainty, the story of science and ideas in the 20th century. And Synchronicity, the bridge between matter and mind. Join us for the next hour as we explore new ways of knowing with our guest, F. David Pete. My name is Michael Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. David, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, it's nice to be with you again. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been over 10 years, I think. I want to go back to your, your roots in, in Liverpool, actually, outside of Liverpool, mm-hmm. a town called Waterloo. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it was, um, it was a suburb of Liverpool, and um, I grew up during the war, so I grew up during being taken to the air raid shelter in the middle of the night. <laughs> it was a pretty horrible experience. Yes, really. There was a lot of bombing in Liverpool because of the docks. And, uh, but anyway, that ended, and... Uh, Went to school in uh, Waterloo Grammar School and, uh, and then from there to university. You had some interesting experiences, though, as a, as a child in that area. I mean, you, you actually wound up living with an aunt and uncle, I believe? I, yes. Um, well, I, I lived with my parents, but uh, the other side of Liverpool, which was where the bombing run stopped, uh, was a little place called Hunt's Cross. And uh, I would s- be sent out and to stay with my aunt and uncle and then... You know, I, I knew when I went to bed that night, that was it. I, I could sleep. There'd be no sounds of air aid warnings, no planes going over. It, w- it was it was like paradise. It was it was quite something. And and compared to the other place, which was constantly looking up in the sky, being taken to the air aid shelter and seeing the the tracer bullets and the planes going overhead. And, yes. You know the flashes from the bombs and right. Yeah, so. yeah it would be pretty traumatic for a child. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. 
So your aunt and uncle, they were they were interesting folks. I mean, your aunt particularly, she read to you. Yep, yeah, and uh, she had a she she talked to me about Plato. She had this home encyclopedia, and we we talk, she talked about Plato, and then I I conjecture about about all sorts of philosophical ideas, and we had another book called The Marvels and Mysteries of Science, which should turn over the pages and. There's an atom, and and the electrons going around is electricity. Does that mean we're all made out of electricity? And we'd look at volcanoes, we'd look at space. So I think my real my interest in science uh, was sparked off by by those books and by the fact that uh, they had a microscope. And one time when they were both out, I took it out of its box and set it up and looked through it, and they were very shocked when I came back. I'd, they'd known how to do that, but I suppose it was by watching how they did it. So. So that, I think those things sparked my interest. And then later on, um, we had a coal shed. Oh, well, you won't know what that is. But, but <laughs> in England, people burnt coal uh, in a fireplace to keep warm. Yes. And you had a shed outside in the garden where a man delivered coal in sacks. And there was a little ledge, and I started doing chemistry experiments in there. So that, that, those were my first experiments. And I would go to the local pharmacist and talk to him, and he saw my interest. So he'd sell me things he was not supposed to sell me, like sulfuric acid and hydrochloric acid and <laughs> sulfur and all sorts of chemicals. I had all these chemicals. I remember one time um, I read about making nitroglycerine, that you, you cooked up uh, glycerine with uh, nitric acid. I remember cooking this stuff up and suddenly thinking, oh, what have I done? I've made nitroglycerine. <laughs> so I said, I don't feel well, I'll go to bed. And I, I rushed off to bed about four o'clock in the afternoon, hoping my father wouldn't go out and get any coal and get blown up. <laughs> oh, then another time I was doing experiments with electricity and uh, I, needed, I, needed more, I needed more power. I kept blowing the fuse in the house. So what I did was I bypassed the fuse at the fuse box and did this experiment and blew out all the lights in in that part of uh, Waterloo. <laughs> the uh, also, uh, I think it was after encountering the uh, the, the Mad- marvels and mysteries of science book that you had you had you you had a, a paradigm shift. There was a paradigm shift that occurred for That's you. That's true. Yes, um, my I can remember very well. I, I was in bed one night, uh, and and my conception of the world was that um, we were inside. Uh, we were inside the we were inside and, and the planets and we were inside the earth essentially and the sun and moon and everything else were inside that and some remark my aunt made made me realize no that's not right we're on the surface of the earth and the sun and the moon and the planets are all outside the earth rotating around it and before that I'd had this completely other uh, conception and it was it was a true paradigm shift it was like it was a shock a shock to me to realize it. For, for most of my life, I'd believed, you know, th- that we lived inside the earth and all the, the, what we could see, the sky was inside the earth and suddenly realized, no, we're on the surface and all that's outside. That was dramatic. It's, and maybe give me an appreciation of what it must have been like for people and the Copernicus theory and other things when you t- your whole world shifts. It's a physical experience, yeah. Galileo, I think Galileo. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah amazing. The... Uh, the other thing, one of the things that happened too, is that um, you you really started to see the the connection between consciousness and mind. I mean, you started reading and yeah. encountering different activities, and also you became interested. Somehow, you got from you got from Liverpool or Waterloo uh, to the to Canada, and that was a kind of a you were, you had different ways of getting there. But can you talk about that out with the transition? <laughs> um, I. I, I 
did, you know, my PhD and I'd written it up and um, I, um, I was thinking of places to go. You know, where should I go? Should I go and do a, P- a postdoctoral in England? I looked at, um, at uh, Southern California, San Diego. There was a person there. Maybe I'd go there. Um, I saw things about Canada and I'd seen, this is so naive, it's crazy. I'd seen this movie, Scott of the Antarctic, where these guys are getting to the pole and I thought, gosh, Canada's going to be like that. It's all going to be snow and moose and stuff like that. Moose and bear on the streets. Moose and bear on the streets, yeah. And and it's going to be like the Wild West except full of snow. I went to the Canadian um, uh, consulate in Liverpool and had photographs up like that. I mean, that, that was the illusion they were projecting. And, and so and the, I was working on a topic called density matrices and there were people at Queen's University Kingston in Canada doing the same topic. And I thought that's where I, that's where I want to go. And uh, I remember getting on the flight and flying to Montreal and getting the train from Montreal to Kingston. Now, Kingston I, was near, near. It's on Lake Ontario. Okay. Yeah. Yes. And it's between Montreal and Toronto. And, and looking at the train window and, and looking, well, where are all these bear and moose? And where, <laughs> where's all this snow? And like, well, it, well, it is a lot of bush. It was a great disappointment. Yes, yes. I remember I arrived, I arrived at the stage and I got a taxi to the university. It, it turned out it was a public holiday. The university was closed. So I went to a greasy spoon and I have a cup of coffee. And I was really exhausted. I was jet lagged. And I look up and there's a notice and it says restrooms upstairs. I thought, wow, isn't like North America amazing? They have rooms where you can like lie down and you know have a bit of a sleep and a doze. And <laughs> I went upstairs. All it was was a bathroom. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, it's funny. The the also you, you in the early days you had some you had some influence. You became you were really interested in music. Yeah, something about music and sound. Can you talk about that? Yeah, um, I yeah I, I was always interested in music, and in fact we had a uh, we had a little group. Um, and we played for uh, uh, for dances and stuff like that. Do you know at that time there was a thing called skiffle? I don't, uh, maybe there's very old people listening to this. Well, remember what skiffle groups were? They were very popular in England, and they, they were it was a, it was a form of music where you had a washboard and guitars and stuff like that. So we had a skiffle group. Well, they call them pickup bands here. Pickup okay. bands, yeah, we did that, and I, I played. I did the percussion. I, you know, I, I don't boast that I played the drums. I played biscuit tins. But I'm happy to say that on my last birthday, my, my wife and my children got me a snare drum. So I now have a snare. I now officially can drum <laughs> and do paradiddles and things like that. That's great. That's yeah. great. Yeah. There's another musical connection, you know. Um, my father was an electrician. Yes. And um, he used to tell me about his, uh, his uh, apprentice. And his apprentice had a group too. And, you know, so great, you know. Good, good for him, and we've got our groups. So we're not interested. And then he said to me, "You know, this guy came to me and said, I want to quit. I'm going to Hamburg with my group.'" And my father said, "I couldn't believe it." And I said to him, "George Harrison, one day you'll come on your hands and knees begging for your job back." But George Harrison never did come back. <laughs> <laughs> you also, you always kind of, you had an early childhood. You liked surprises. You kind of you experiences liking enjoying surprises. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where did that come from? I don't know, but I'll tell you one thing. What I what I really like is to be asked to write something or do something that I've never ever done before. Uh, I'll give you an example. An example. Recently, there's um, a, an art uh, gallery in Rome that's been running for a whole over a whole year. A series of exhibitions, each one for three weeks, on the idea of the whole. You know, so it could be a hole in a piece of canvas. It could be 
it could be uh, in, in a sculpture. Uh, and the director of the gallery asked me, would you write uh, a, a catalogue, a long essay about the idea of the whole? And that to me was, was such a, a great opportunity to do something you've never, ever done before and to think about it. Well, what is it? It's like a full stop. And, and every, every, uh, you know, everything ends with a full stop except Finnegan's Wake, which doesn't because it goes back to the beginning again. And, and it could be silence in John Cage, the silence in music. So all, all the ideas of, of, of a gap, a stop, a full stop, uh, a whole. And, and so I, I find that, thing, that to me is, is great fun, to be asked to do something you, you've never, ever done before and you don't know how to do. To ask to do something you know how to do, yeah, that's work. But to, to be asked to do something that you don't know how to do really challenges you. Yes. Reminds me of one of the things you wrote about was hearing uh, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. A friend of you, yeah. friend of yours yeah. played it for you. It was the first time you ever heard a chorus, a chorale, yeah. a chorale with the symphony. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yes. We, we, we listened to He didn't tell me, you know, he knew because he'd borrowed the records. But I'm listening and listening, and suddenly there's this shout, Freud, da, 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 da. I couldn't believe it. Uh, and and I, that my sense that I'm experiencing it as as the very first uh, the people heard it the very first time, yeah that was that was so we listened to a lot of music a lot of music we listened to um, yeah we listened to a lot of jazz and uh, from jazz a traditional or you know uh, New Orleans jazz went on to modern jazz then the modern jazz quartet and modern jazz quartet had uh, one piece of music, Softly as in the Morning sunlo- Sunrise, and it said that it begins with one of the canons from Bach's musical offering. Well, I didn't know what a canon was, and I thought, well, I must listen to Bach. So that introduced me to so, classical music. So making yeah. connections, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd like to continue with this. I'm speaking with F. David Pete, author of Pathways of Chance. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. My guest is F. David Pete, author of Pathways of Chance, a host of other books, Blackfoot Physics, Synchronicity, The Bridge Between Matter and Mind, The Philosopher's Stone, Seven Life Lessons of Chaos, and From Certainty to Uncertainty, plus others. David, we were talking about, you were talking about jazz, and uh, one of the things that you mentioned, which really struck me, that in, in England, I guess, you were limited as the amount of American jazz you could listen to. What was that about? This was uh, something to do with the musicians' union. That uh, they didn't, uh, if they were going to get someone like Dave Brubeck to play a concert, then the first half of the concert had to feature um, a British jazz group. 
and and Brubeck was only allowed in the second half. So I it see. was it was a problem with the musicians' union. I see. Preventing us from listening to. So it's only when I came to Canada that I began to right. hear jazz. But yeah. then you got to Paris at some point. That's right. Yes, I, I took a trip to Paris and uh, I wanted to listen to all the. The, the jazz in Paris. I went to various clubs, and I went to a club where I knew Stefan Grappelli played. And I asked at the bar, "Is Mr. Grappelli playing tonight?" They said, "No." There's another group. So I sat at the table, and then someone came over and said, "You wanted to see me?" Uh, I looked up, and there's Stefan Grappelli. He said, "You want to hear some jazz?" And so he took me to all the jazz clubs. We got this entry into every jazz club in in Paris the whole that was, night. That was, great. that was fantastic. Yeah. One yeah. of the things about your life that I've no- noticed is that. You have these synchronistic events happen in your life. I mean, they're, some people might call them accidents, but these kind of interesting connections that are that that prop up in your life. What about that? That that does happen. Um, you know, maybe I, I could just tell you the story of jumping ahead of how we got to the village where we live now. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I did write a book. I did um, when I was a student see an interview with Carl Jung on the television. That impressed me a lot. And later on, I I when I had a year sabbatical, I read a lot of Carl Jung. Uh, and in synchronicity, Carl Jung talks about meaningful coincidence, that things that happen together that would have a, a deep sense, uh, you know, a deep sense of affect, the numinous, they connect the inner and outer, a dream and an outer event. And one of his examples is of the woman who was resistant to therapy. I told him she had a dream of a scarab, and a scarab for the ancient Egyptians was the symbol of resurrection, rebirth. And at that moment, there's a tapping at the window, and Jung opens the window, and a scarab flies in. And the woman is amazed and shocked because it's a scarab from her dream. And then her therapy is transformed. Yes. Now I can tell you my anecdote. Yes. Okay, so now we put the, the scarab in. That um, when um, I was we're jumping ahead a lot, I, I had a reason to go and, and live in London for several months. And we put our house up for rent in Ottawa in Canada. And it turned out someone made us a generous offer to buy it more than we thought it was worth. So we accepted it. But we had to go somewhere for three months because they wanted to move in immediately. Yes. And we decided to go to Siena. And we had a travel agent set up an apartment for us in Siena for three months. In Italy. In Italy. The day we left to go to the airport, she told us, in fact, it had fallen through. There was no apartment. There was a place where we could stay temporarily. So we go to Siena. And we, this is August, which is the time of the horse race, the paleo. It's a time when everybody's there at language schools. And we're wandering around. We go to every, uh, on a list we've been given, every agent and trying to get an apartment. There is nothing available. We're really at the lowest point. And at the lowest point of synchronicity generally occurs. We're talking about maybe we'll go to Portugal. Uh, at that point, we're sitting together on, on, on a fountain. And I see in a corner agency, and it's not on the list. And I think we could try that. And as I walk towards it, there are a group of Germans speaking German, looking down on the ground. And I look at what are they looking at? They're looking at a golden scarab beetle. This is very unusual. And so I say to Marine, now we're going to get something. We go in, the agent says, we have nothing. On the way out, his secretary says, I've got a friend in a little village <laughs> who has a house for sale. Maybe they'd rent it to you. So we say, okay, we'll take it. And that's how we ended up in that village, by, by an amazing coincidence. Really? And then... We stayed there for three months. A year later, we're driving to a conference. We stop off at the village. Somebody says, there's a house if you want to take it for a year. And we took it, and we've, we've lived there ever since. So it's as if we always felt we, we meant to be there. The village called us. Yes. Which, which sounds very new agey and all that, but I have no other explanation. Yes. 
Well, another rather uh, extraordinary uh, synchronicity that I'm recalling as you were talking is the your friend Clem Ford. Yeah. Like, talk about who was Clem Ford. Okay, we we, we sort of. Um, from from teenagers, we're, we're very close friends. We joined the same tennis club. We hung around with each other, you know, every day. We, uh, and he uh, went into linguistics, and I went into physics, and he went off to University of London, and then uh, went down to uh, South America. And we we both were fans of uh, of Jack Kerouac stories, you know, yes. up on the road and everything. And yes. Kerouac and his friends say we're going to meet in Mexico City. So we made this joke: we'll meet in Mexico City. On the, in this particular year. Yes. Well, uh, I knew Clem was in South America. I was in uh, Ottawa at the National Research Council, and I was going to a conference in Mexico City. Um, I'm at the conference. I'm walking out, and who comes towards me but Clem Ford? I couldn't believe it. I yes. said, what are you doing here? He said, well, I'm on my way. I've got a job in uh, in Canada. I'm on my way. I've been part hitching, part taking buses. Uh, and there you are. So, so we spent the day together, and I lent him enough money to get to the border. But that was an amazing coincidence because we'd always joked yes. about meeting in Mexico City. Sure, yes. and there we did. You talked, wrote about the body, yeah, and and the the connections that mm. are made. Can, can you get yeah. a little deeper uh, than that? I, I could also add, you know, in anticipation. You know, we'll talk later on about David Bohm. Yes. David Bohm was a well-known physicist, and he said that. Um, he experienced sensations in his body. When he was do, do, working with certain sorts of equations, he'd experienced sensations and then other sensations. And gradually, somehow, a third counterintuitive sensation would come up, and that would relate to the equations he's working on. Right. And he spoke to the, Einstein about this. And Einstein said, when I work on the field equations, I have a rubber ball, and I squeeze it, and I feel the tensions in my arm. So both those people felt somehow that the mathematics or the physics or whatever was somehow inside their bodies. Uh, and I feel that too. And then another thing Bohm used to say was, that, you know, there are two ways I can discover the universe. I can go into the laboratory and look outside, but the, the matter of my body is the matter of the universe. So the laws of nature and physics must be inside me too. So somehow they're inside me, and they could be revealed, and that is that's what often what I feel is, is, is when I'm writing and, and uh, somehow I get stuck. I, I feel it, it's maybe in my right leg, what I've got to write about. <laughs> and if I just wait a bit, it's going to come out, and maybe two days later, it just all comes out, and, I, and the tension in the leg is gone. So I, and I, I feel that with music too. There, there is these inner sensations. I talked to Michael Tippett. And he talked about um, the when he was working on the Midsummer Marriage, the opera, how uh, the music came, he invoked the music. He used the word invocation, like in the ancient Greeks would have invoked the gods. You invoke the music. The music's inside him, but it's not yet ready to be written down. And this it puts a tremendous stress on the body. And in the case of of uh, the Midsummer Marriage, it led to him believing or being diagnosed as having cancer. Uh, until the time was ready for the music to be written down, and then it flowed out. But there's that sense of holding. Uh, and I've talked to artists who've said something similar. You hold the intention in the body. So I really would want to get away from, from the sort of the new dualism that's everything's, everything's or, or it's just consciousness. Yes. No, it's the body as well. I yes. think that's really important to emphasize it. We're, you know, we're whole human beings. I think that's also one of the limits of AI, artificial intelligence, you see, can you build a computer that thinks like a human being? Well, the computer's disembodied, and human beings are, human beings are embodied. Uh, we really don't know how we do the things we do. 
We may have certain cognitive strategies, but it's much more than that. Yeah. What's the soul of a computer? Yeah. Where's the soul? The soul soul and the machine. Yeah, Yeah, really. Reminded me again, you you referred to Gerard Manley Hopkins and a term that he used, Inscape. Yes. And this is the inner authenticity of individual individual things. Yes. And that's what you're talking about here. Yeah. I like to, when I talk to people about synchronicities, I also like to invoke Hopkins' idea of of Inscape. And he also talked about in-stress. In-stress was the energy in things and the energy that manifested it so that you see the inscape of things. There's a, a Sufi story, the master who wishes to pass on his mantle. And he tells his wife, he's picked a boy in the village, and the, you know, the wife says, well, he's a, just a poor boy, and you know, why don't you give it to one of your sons? So he says, tomorrow I'm going to pass on my mantle. And the next morning, uh, the, his followers, they bring him big bowls of fruit, they bring him flowers, they bring him many, many gifts. The boy he'd chosen brings him nothing. And he said, why, why did you insult me? The boy said, I went out in the field, I saw the poppies. As I bent to pick them, the poppies sang the praises of Allah, so I left them. And he saw a tree of pomegranates. As I went to pick the pomegranates, it sang the praises of Allah. Everywhere I went, nature sang the praises of Allah, so I brought you nothing. And he got the mantle. So I would say that Hopkins' uh, inscape is a little like that. It's the, the inner voice, the authentic voice of, 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 of all things, or living things, and even the sunset. So he's, he's been quite an uh, important influence on me. And the other person who picked up on this was uh, James Joyce with his notion of epiphany, the idea that a word or something seen or overheard can suddenly make an, like an overall pattern in your life. So I think these things happen, and you can call them synchronicities, meaningful coincidences, epiphanies, or this appreciation of inscape. Certainly one of the things I appreciated about David Bohm was that his interest in the origins of words, and he would he would frequently break down where did the root yeah. came from, yeah. and, and it would bring up new meanings and yes. new ways yeah. of perceiving. Yes, he loved that. He had a big just so he had to be one of these things about words. Oh yes, he would love that, and, and looking at the meaning meaning of words. I remember like joking with him once. He, um, he's saying, you see, art. You see, it comes. It's, it's like the movement. You see, and he, we talk like this. You see, there's a there's the artisan. You see, and there's there's the art movement, and there's the and I said the artichoke. Yes, yeah, the art. Then you think, wait a minute, artichoke? No, that doesn't belong. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, he loved the meaning of words, and and and, and uh, that there was there was something in the root that would would, would be. Um, and you know when he and he also very interested in language. You know the the, yes. the languages we speak, you know, give us a certain worldview which is limited, and we need to move beyond that into other form, other languages. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. Think about the language that you you wrote about uh, sentences with a predicate or without. Yeah. A predicate. Yeah. The, the idea is is you say uh, the the cat chases the mouse in our in our. European languages, so you have an object, a cat, you have another object, a mouse, you have an activity between them, like a verb. And that's very much like the Newtonian or the classical worldview that you have objects with forces between them. But in the, in the quantum world, you just have processes. So Bohm kept searching, can we have another sort of language, which is a very verb-based language, which he called the real mode, rios to flow, the flowing mode, and can we, can we create a language that, that really reflects a process nature of the world. In the last year of his life, we'd organized a circle of Native American elders and uh, Western scientists, and Bohm was present, and some of the Blackfoot people were there. And the language they speak is very strongly verb-based, and it doesn't lead itself to compartmentalizing things into categories. 
And when he found about the worldview, the worldview is everything is flux, everything is process, everything is change, everything is transformation. So there, the last year of his life, Bourne said, that's the language I've been looking for. It, and it's spoken by Ojibwe, Cree, Mi'kmaq, Naskapi, and Blackfoot people. It's, it's a lang- and to give you one example, there's, there's, there's a, a, a long word written down in the dictionary. It tells you the sorcerer sings to the sick man. But we were told that actual is a, is, a, is a verb, and the verb is about singing, and it's really saying singing is going on, or the song is singing itself. And the modifiers on the verb suggest um, uh, a, you know, two people, a, uh, the, the, the shaman and the sick person. So it really gives you a completely different worldview. And we're talking about completely different worldviews with our guest, F. David Pete, author of Pathways of Chance and Blackfoot Physics. We'll find out more about that when we return. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. My guest is F. David Pete, and he's the author of, among other books, um, Blackfoot Physics. And the new scientist called this the modern version of the Tao of Physics, which was a very you know, well-known book that Fritjof Kappa wrote in the 70s. So we were talking about the various, uh, you know, David Bohm joining you for a meeting with the various tribal uh, groups. And I guess that was in, that in Canada, or where was that? No, that was in um, in Kalamazoo at the Fetzer Institute. Oh, okay, but yes. Our first meetings were in Canada. We, you know, we met in, uh, in in one of the reservations in a teepee, and we met in Banff, and then we met at uh, at uh, Fetzer. Yeah, so yes. we had a few meetings. I remember one of the th- one of the stories that may have been from you or, or David. I can't remember which, but uh, when you met as a group in the circle, and different people went around introducing themselves, and it finally came to one of the women uh, elders and she said, she said I want to know where your where where your where your roots are where where you what is your what is your home what is your land where what, what land do you walk on what land do you identify you know do you yeah. can you, you remember that story uh, yeah um I can remember I can relate it to another one which was when um we we're going to have the meeting at, at the Fetzer Institute and, and this was in Kalamazoo and it had been founded by Johnny Fetzer and um, the first thing the you know the Blackfoot people say, well, if we're going to come there, we must be invited. So I said, I understand. So I go to the Fetzer people and say, like, which land are you on? Who 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 is the, who's the keeper of the land? And they didn't know. And then I realized, well, most people in North America probably don't know who is the keeper of the land where they live. Yes. And in fact, there were two guys in a pickup truck came to the Fetzer Institute. They did ceremonies. They put tobacco at the four corners. Uh, you know, they, they burned some sweet grass and said, now you can talk about sacred things in this space. And so uh, uh, under that invitation, the Blackfoot and, and, and the various other Pihida people came into that space. But they couldn't come into it. Unless and to talk about sacred things, unless that space had been had been first of all uh, created for them. Yes, and and, and the, you know the, there's a tradition of the Blackfoot that they they did travel. They travel 
talked about traveling way down to the south of the land of the mound builders and they had a song that they would sing when they're off their territory and it's a song saying we are traveling we mean you no harm we don't want to harm the animals so the little traveling songs they had and um, so so yeah the, the idea that that um each person uh, you know had had a piece of land or or, or a territory and I, I i met after david Baum's death i met with Leroy Littlebear at the memorial uh, conferences held in Edinburgh. We were talking. He said, "You know, really, I, some of these things I can't talk to you about because I'm not on my land. I have to be on my land to talk about them." Um, and I would say now to jump ahead to say, living in this little village of Pari, I, I can identify with that. Saying that, that there is a link to the land, and you know, many people have it. North Americans have it, and some don't. Some have a link to the city, but I think in. in- Particularly among indigenous cultures, I think of the, um, the in the South Pacific. I mean, when the uh, native islanders of, of Tonga and the South Seas, uh, they would travel. They would have these huge canoes. They would travel, and then they took they took their earth with them. Uh, they took their they took their earth with them, and then, then of course the legends of Hawaii and how that got actually uh, started and founded. And and then I think of the Haida, the Haida people who. Built their canoes out of these huge cedar trees and yeah. sailed the sailed the Pacific yep. Pacific Rim, and they too had their stories yep. and and their songs. You know, at the very first meeting I went to with uh, Leroy Littlebear and Pam Colorado, they'd invited two Australian Aboriginal women to come, and they talked about the song lines. You know, the fact that the, that the songs stretch right across Australia, and the next day they said, in the night we heard the songs. And we didn't know, but the songs don't just stretch across it. They stretch across the whole world. So they heard the songs in the territory of the Blackfoot. Hmm. Uh, That's a nice story. Yeah, Yeah, it's all connected, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's (laughs) hard to leave the the universe. You know, and, and, and when you think of something stretching the earth, you know, my mind jumps to Nikola Tesla. Uh, and there he is at Colorado Springs with this enormous Tesla coil banging the earth and watching the the electrical signal, the, the, the impact is made, go right round the Earth and come back again, that it circles the Earth. Yeah. Tell us about Tesla. Some people may not be familiar with his work. Well, Nikola Tesla was a very eccentric man, and, and, and uh, he, he developed quite a few um, you know, inventions in, in the field of, of electricity. He probably had the first, uh, before Marconi, the first, the first form of radio. Um, and one of the things he did was uh, create the alternating current motor, the AC motor and the AC generator. And the thing about Tesla is, was where today you, you'd spend hours at the computer working things out. These inventions seemed to come to Tesla in his mind. They just, just appeared. And he took this AC motor, uh, and um, at that time, Thomas Edison was working with direct current. And so he took it to George Westinghouse and sold it for a suitcase full of money. I think Westinghouse gave him something like a million dollars in a suitcase. And Tesla moved out to Colorado Springs and set up this big laboratory. He felt he could communicate with other planets. He, he, he sent these signals right around the Earth. He did the most amazing things. And uh, he also felt with resonance he could knock down entire buildings. And if you want to know about Tesla, then you watch this movie called The Prestige, in which Tesla is one of the characters. And I can tell you, apart from duplicating people, which he didn't do, most of what you see in that film, he did do. He did set, sit inside this cage with, with enormous bolts of lightning around him. He held out uh, incandescent lamps and they lit. He, he was an amazing character. You had, you had to have, I mean, and also he was very isolated. You had to 
It was very difficult to get to see yes, him or yeah, talk with him. Yeah, and the, the older he got, the more and more isolated he got. And he became obsessed, as some people, obsessive compulsives do, with germs, that there was poison in his food. And he ended up like a very lonely, sad, almost like uh, the equivalent of a street person. But a man who had an enormous amount of money in his time for his inventions and, and remarkable inventions. And, uh, you know, the, even some years ago in Canada, they were, they, they were looking at the possibility of transmitting energy from Labrador to Newfoundland uh, without wires, which, which Tesla had proposed to do. And uh, th there's a feasibility to it, except that the, the side effects would be pretty disastrous if you had built an enormous Tesla transmitter. You'd be reducing lots of x-rays and very unpleasant things. But, yeah, it, it's, um, it's sort of a, a genius way ahead of his time who appeared to get these visions of, of these incredible devices. Uh, so, so I think he is a truly mysterious figure. <laughs> yes. Uh, it just brings to mind one of the chapters in your in, uh, Pathways of Chance is uh, entitled Radio Days. Oh. And you mentioned uh, that you saw Jung on television, but you heard David Bohm on the radio when you first that's first encountered great. David. Yeah, yes, that's right. I remember there was on the, the BBC used to be fantastic, uh, and, and you know here in the United States you got PBS, which is a really great thing too, and New Dimensions Radio. So so it's <laughs> so the tradition continues. But but uh, say on the on, on the BBC third program, I used to listen to Fred Hoyle talk about uh, the universe, and there were several programs on quantum theory, and on one of them David Bohm appeared, and I thought, what well, this man is so different from everybody else. I really would like to. One day to, to why meet was, him. Why was he different? Why did you? Hear, you oh, because him? everybody. It, it was it, it was going in a completely different direction from everybody else. Everything else seemed fairly conventional. He he was proposing something radically different. Um, I could tell you the story about how I first met him. Yes. Yeah. You see, um, I um, I, I've been doing research and I was getting more and more bored. I was getting frustrated and bored because because I, I thought none of this is very deep and very interesting. And in fact, I had I worked in a government laboratory, and I was on the ground floor. I had to sign in, and I'd open the window and climb out of the window and take a book and go to the waterfall and read. <laughs> you know, and I wanted to read. I read, read Newton's Principia. I read, read what Faraday did. I read Maxwell. I, I wanted to go back to the greats. And then I, I wrote around and said, who's doing the most exciting work in the world? And people said, Roger Penrose. So I said, okay, I'll take a year off and I'll go and work with Penrose. So that's what I did. And I went to Penrose's seminars. And a student of mine who got a PhD and was doing his postdoctoral at Birkbeck College. So I went across to see him and I go in the graduate room. And there's an older man in arguing with a student. And he's saying to the student, and the student's saying, uh, no, I don't believe in the absolute. And this man says, so you don't believe in the absolute. you com completely convinced, yeah. So that's an absolute, absolute statement is I don't believe in the absolute. <laughs> so I pursued this guy outside and said, I've got to talk to you. I really must talk to you. And he said, well, I'm David Baum. And I said, well, I really want to talk to you. So he said, well, come to my office. And uh, like two or three times, well, no, more than that, three or four times a week, I would go in in the afternoon and talk to him and would have long discussions. And one night when I went back, suddenly something struck me, and I phoned him up and said, you know, we're not really talking about physics at all. We're talking about the nature of human consciousness. And he said, yes, that's right. Come and see me tomorrow. So that's how that relationship began. And, and it was just talking to him day after day after day and working through physics and seeing really what it is. It's about the nature of consciousness. 
And then, you know, he told me about his relationship to Krishnamurti and we had uh, a nice meeting with uh, Fritjof Capra was there and uh, Carl Prebram and Morris. Was that at Brockwood? Yeah. And Mar- Morris Wilkins got the Nobel Prize for DNA and Krishnamurti and we all sat around for, you know, several days together. And what talked. was that like? It was interesting. It was interesting. It was, um, I don't know how successful it was. I mean, there was some... Um, reluctance on the part of some of the scientists to to uh, because uh, I mean Krishnamurti would would have said uh, you know when he uh, at one time Annie Besant and people set him up as as the world teacher yes then he he dissolved it saying truth is a passless land except no authority and he would constantly say this except no authority in particular the one who is speaking now yet the overall effect was that he was an authority figure. And so I think for some physicists, that, that didn't sit very well. Yes. Yeah. I mean, at one time, he, he talked about the fact that, um, I mean, one of Krishnamurti's things was that thought is constantly going on, the, the monkey mind. And if thought could end, something else would operate, which he called the intelligence, or sometimes he called it the intelligence. And that, if that operated on the silent mind, it could actually transform the brain. So the brain would undergo a transformation. It would be qualitatively different. And he said that his brain had undergone a transformation was different from anybody else's. So Carl Prebram, the neuroscientist, says, well, you know, okay, that's pretty easy. We'll just hook you up tonight. <laughs> but, of course, Krishnamurti wouldn't have any of that. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine Carl. I can hear Carl Prebram saying that, too. Yes. <laughs> uh, and then on the other hand, David uh, Bohm, I mean, he became very interested in dialogue. And part of it was his relationship with Krishnamurti, wasn't it? Um, well, I, I could explain a little bit about that. Yeah. yeah. He, he, he was very close to Krishnamurti, and they... They pursued things, and many people felt that Krishnamurti had changed the way he spoke after being with David Bohm. It wasn't that he'd learned from Bohm, but he'd, he'd learned a new way of communicating. And um, towards the end of, of their relationship, uh, there were things happening at Brockwood Park that Bohm wasn't too happy with. And he wondered, why does Krishnamurti allow this confusion around him? And he felt it was necessary somehow to, to, to have a confrontation with Krishnamurti. And he also began to think, he began to think there were three dimensions to a human being. There's the individual dimension, there's the collective dimension or social dimension, and there's the spiritual or, 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 or mystical dimension. That yeah. he saw that Krishnamurti very definitely uh, addressed the mystical dimension of a human being, but not the social. And he said that we are all related to Krishnamurti like spokes to a wheel, to the center of the wheel, but there's no, there's no tire, there's no circumference. So the, the, the social dimension is missing. And I think uh, more or less what happened was that he had a confrontation with Krishnamurti. It didn't go too well. Uh, their relationship broke off. And I think uh, then later on, Krishnamurti got cancer and died. And I think Bohm was deeply troubled and very hurt by that, that they'd that, that never been able to repair that, that deep friendship of, you know, a friendship based upon, upon the pursuit of truth, both of them pursuing truth. Yes. And after that, he did turn to the idea of dialogue. How do we address the social dimension? Yeah. I'm speaking with F. David Pete, and we're talking about how to perceive the world in new ways. And my name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions.
My guest is F. David Pete, the author of Pathways of Chance, which is an autobiographical account of his rather extraordinary uh, life to date. I'm sure it's got a lot more to go, but um, all of the amazing connections and different people that he's met, uh, not the least of which is uh, his encounters with David Bohm and his work with David Bohm. And uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about dialogue and how important dialogue is. Yeah, well, you know, when uh, they went to Confucius and uh, at the time of great troubles and uh, said, what should we do? And Confucius said, first purify the language. And that was one aspect of a dialogue that Dave uh, felt that um, that in through dialogue, it's possible to make ch- subtle, subtle changes in the language. And, and, and many of the problems, uh, he used to fr- refer to it as pollution. You know, you put pollution in the, in the river and it comes down to the town. There's no point clearing up the pollution there. You must go upstream and clear it up. And so as if, as if there were all sorts of assumptions embedded in our language and it was necessary at the social level, to, to maybe change the language in very, very subtle ways. So the idea is that language uh, conveys very, very subtle pieces of information that that maybe disturb our thinking. And the other aspect of, of dialogue was, well, the idea of a dialogue group was you have 20 to 40 people, which Bohm felt was the same size as the early hunter-gatherers, and you meet on a very regular basis, so you develop a sense of trust, and this is what you do. Now, what he would say is, is each person has certain fixed non-negotiable positions. You know, okay, I, so, so one person in the group may say, I believe the, inalienably in a woman's right to choice. And another person would say, I believe that the fetus, even at one day old, is a living thing and that has the right to life. If you put those two people together, either they argue to the point where it becomes unpleasant and they split up, or they'll agree we will never, ever touch on that topic. Now, in a group of 40 people, there will always be, Bohm's idea was there will always be quite a few people that don't hold to either of those two positions very strongly, and they can act as moderators. And the word moderator uh, is used also in, in a nuclear reactor. It's a, that in a nuclear reactor, the uranium splits and, and neutrons fly out. And if you can slow them down with a moderator, slow them down enough, they'll be able to hit other uranium action, uh, atoms and cause a chain reaction. So you have a controlled reaction in a, in, in, in a nuclear reactor, a controlled fish, uh, fission reaction. You can produce heat. It's, the whole thing's under control because you have a moderator that slows things down. Yes. And he felt that the other people in the group act as moderators. So when somebody says something to you, a word that immediately causes you an intake of breath and you become angry or, or you become frightened or you become aggressive, you, and you don't maybe know why. But if the group slows you down, you begin to see how that process operates in, inside you. And that was Bohm's idea. No, this person believes in the right to choice. This person believes in the sacredness of life. Of life. We under no desire to change their opinions. But what we would like them to do is to see how those opinions are structured within their bodies and, and within their consciousness, within their thought. How are these things structured? And then as you become more and more aware of them, you're not in their grip anymore. You know, you, 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 you can... Uh, so, so sometimes when, when these groups have been going and they were all very polite and then somebody would, an argument would develop, you could see Bohm was quite a little bit happy about that because, you know, some genuine feelings are occurring and it gives t- people a chance to, um, to explore what's happened inside themselves. So again, it goes back, you know, to the body as well, that a lot of these things are somatic and the French, uh, uh therapist Lacan said, uh, that, that symptoms are, are in, are inside the body as words, so that Lacan felt that the words inside the body are the symptoms. 
So that, that was basically Bohm's idea of a dialogue. And it was the other thing to emphasize was it was an experiment, a social experiment. And I know there are groups now who set dialogue more rigidly and have all sorts of rules. I don't know if Bohm would have been that happy with that. Yeah, I'm thinking there's this term actually called Bohmium dialogue, which is the antithesis of what yeah. David would, would yeah. uh, say. It's ironic you should say that because there's Bohmian dialogue and there are also people who have taken up Bohm's work in physics and call themselves Bohmian mechanics. And Bohm said that they should really be called Bohmian non-mechanics because <laughs> it's not a mechanical approach. Yes. I want to go go back to there's another there was someone who you mentioned earlier, and, and he he obviously was a powerful influence. That's Anish Kapoor, the sculptor. Yes, yeah. I uh, this is quite you know, I'm so lucky, you know, that, that I get to meet everybody I want to meet. I mean, this is amazing. Not, not many people do. I, I go into the gallery, National Gallery of Canada, and I see this sculpture which is overwhelming. And a lot of it deals with voids. So it's, it's, it's pieces of granite hollowed out and with black pigment. And, and the pigment's applied over and over and over again with less and less thinness. And it's just the pure dust. And so it creates a void. You can't locate yourself in it. And, and many of his pieces are like that. They're, they're either the voids or in darkenment. And he talks about in darkenment. And some of the other pieces are very, very highly polished. And to the point where you can't see the piece. All you can see is the reflections of the room. You can't actually see it. So th these pieces are are pieces that sort of disappear from you. And I was so impressed, I wrote a letter. And, and he wrote back and said, when you come to London, come to dinner. And so I went to dinner at his house, and he introduced me to another uh, sculptor, Anthony Gormley. And, and since then, I've made regular visits to Anisha's studio. It was there last year. And uh, we've often talked about this question, where is the art and where is the matter? And we also, with the Jungian therapists, have said, where is the healing? Because where does it take place? Is it, is, it, is it the doctor healing the patient? Or is it that magical moment when the patient and the doctor disappear in the alchemical vessel of the hour and something new is born? So, that, so we've, def and, and we've talked about, and he talks a lot about uh, um, alchemy, and he feels there's an alchemical change in the greatest pieces of art. The, the matter is different. So yes, he's been uh, I, I'm very much influenced by what he's done in this idea of the void. Somebody else that influenced you, uh, he, his, his name was Dickie Blink. Oh, God, yeah, physics Dickie Blink. Teacher. He was our physics teacher. Yeah, great to mention Dickie Blink. I'll pay homage to him. You see, everybody else, you, 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 know, you did an experiment at school. What Dickie Blink would say, uh, you've got to measure the specific heat of copper. How are you going to do it? And we'd have to figure out how to do it, and we'd say, well, we need this piece of apparatus, and he'd get things out of the cupboard and give it to us. And then we'd, we'd do the experiment. And then when we're doing electrical experiments, he'd come over, he'd pull a wire out and say, how, where are you going to put that back? You've got to tell me logically how you're going to do it. So I felt I got the highest education from, from, from a, 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 well, the age of 16 and 17 and 18 from a physics teacher, which far better than I ever got at university. I told you critical thinking. Yeah, yeah, critical thinking. It was Dicky Blink, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he was also amazing because he, when he was at the blackboard writing equations, he knew what we were doing. We couldn't figure that out. How on earth does he know? How does he know what I, that I just <laughs> borrowed a pen? How did he know that? It's only later on when I left school, I noticed he put a little prism up at the top of the blackboard. So as he was writing, you could see what was happening behind him. <laughs> That's a good tip for any teacher. Clever, clever man, <laughs> clever man. Cezanne and his paintings, he was always questioning, looking again yeah. and again and again yeah. and again. And that's something that you do. Uh, yeah, I, I relate a lot to Cezanne, yeah. 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 And also Cezanne felt that the, um, 
that the landscape spoke through him, and he was expressing his its consciousness. So the landscape was alive. Yeah. Yeah, and you look at those landscapes, and they are—they're yeah. quite amazing. Yeah. Yeah, the, the original the, the paintings. Themselves. I actually went to Mont Saint Victoire, which is where he painted, and uh, we stayed at the hotel on the side of the mountain. And they say you'd want the valley view. I said no, I want a room at the back. And that night we had the windows open, and Mont Saint Victoire was there, and it it glows white. It's incredible, and he just couldn't sleep. And, and in the end, I said to my wife, "I'm not supposed to be here. That's Cezanne's mountain. You know, I'm not supposed to be here." It was just too overpowering. Too overpowering. There was another interesting fellow that you encountered, uh, old Mister Babbage. That's right. There was an old guy on the bus stop, and he used to take the um, take the same bus as I did into Liverpool. And he used to tell me about his ancestor. I don't know if it was his grandfather, but there are two things. One, that he'd invented a wonderful cigarette-making machine, and the other, that he'd invented um, a thing for making calculations. And th this guy said, I've, I've got this, all these papers in my house. And he died, and we discovered he was the direct ancestor of Charles Babbage, who made the first analytical engine, you know, the, the ancestor to the computer. Amazing. Yeah, amazing. I mean, if, if only I'd known at the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. So you founded the Paris, Paris Center, that's yeah. P-A-R-I Center. That's right. yeah. Can you talk about that and what its purpose is, what you're doing there? Yeah, we have a sort of maxim about it which says the future has an ancient heart. Uh, it's a village, a medieval village. It goes back to the time of the Etruscans, and even before that, there are Etruscan remains, Roman remains, uh, and the present structure is medieval. And it used to have over 1,000 people. Now there's just around about 200. So there are quite a few empty houses that are furnished, which means people can come in, stay for a month, rent a house. So uh, we started off with a conference, the future of the university in the year 2000. And since then, each year we've run some conferences. We've run courses. We run, say, three courses a year. But more than that, we have people who say, well, we'd like to come for a month. Um, uh, we've had writers come and to work on a book. We've had artists come to work. We've had two composers. And so it's, it's a place, it's a retreat, and there will always be some other people there that are interesting. And, uh, you know, they can do their own cooking. When, when we have courses, uh, you know, we do the cooking. And uh, so we run three courses. One is New Paradigms, New Science. Another one is on synchronicity. And the third is uh, Art, Science, and the Sacred. So it's, it's a, we just wanted to make a place, a sort of retreat, uh, a sort of, Alternative place, and so here you are in the, in, in the beautiful Tuscan countryside, and and uh, every Italian every uh, Italian village is it's like you can you experience all of Italy in every Italian village yeah, yeah. because you have the, the bread, the wine, yeah. the new the 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 uh, the pasta, yeah, that's true. I'm sure there, yeah. Too, right? But you know, I would say ours is pretty unique. It's one of the better villages, and, and, <laughs> and its nickname its nickname in the area is Little Siena. It's like a miniature version of Siena. And Siena is the most perfectly preserved medieval town in Italy because it didn't suffer from the Renaissance. You know? Yes. And that's a word I say, suffer from the Renaissance. So suffer from the Renaissance. That's a whole other program. <laughs> <laughs> suffer from the Renaissance. Yeah, that's an interesting phrase. So people can find out more about it on the website, paricenter, P-A-R-I-Center.com. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Good. David, it's really been great speaking with you. It's been wonderful to reconnect and... I've been speaking with F. David Pete, author of Pathways of Chance, an autobiographical uh, account of his life, which is a wonderful book, and uh, Blackfoot Physics, uh, Synchronicity, The Bridge Between Matter and Mind, and a host of other books. You can find out more on the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. Check us out. 
And um, my name is Michael Toms, and you've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3204. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. New Dimensions.